Take a Bible, John chapter 3. There are notes in your bulletin you can follow along. John chapter 3. This is the last Sunday in our series, The Character of God. Next week, we will hear from Dr. Danny Aiken. He's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's going to be speaking at our marriage conference on Saturday, uh, on Sunday morning. If you're interested, he's going to have a class, a one-hour class during Sunday school about parenting. And then here in worship, he's going to preach for us. And so I'm excited about that. The following Sunday... After we get through marriage conference and hearing from Dr. Aiken, uh, we're going to jump right back into the Gospel of John. That's the book of the Bible that we're currently working through. We took a short break, January and February, to think about the character of God at the beginning of the new year. But next week we jump right back in, March 8th, uh, we'll be in the Gospel of John. We'll pick up right where we left off, and that's our normal sort of standard operating procedure on Sunday mornings. Occasionally we do some topical series, but most of what we do is work through a book of the Bible. And there's value in that because when you work through a book of the Bible, you brush up against passages that you may not normally pick to speak from or to talk about or to preach about on a Sunday morning. And so working through the scripture forces us to listen to the full counsel of God's word. Uh, it forces me to talk about things that I may not be inclined to talk about, and it forces you to hear things that you may not be inclined to hear. And so we'll pick up with that uh, in two Sundays. This morning, it's the last Sunday in the character of God. Uh, there is value occasionally in stopping and sort of top talking about a a topic or an issue or a doctrine and thinking about what the Bible says in a number of different places about that. The list of God's attributes that we've been working through is uh, on the screen. Holiness, self-existence, sovereignty, goodness, faithfulness, power, patience, wrath, and this morning, love. Several of you have talked about uh, liking this series. You've enjoyed thinking about some of these things. At some point, I've already got a version 2.0. Not that God will be a new version, but that we'll have a new list. And uh, some of the things we may come back at some point and talk about are his eternity, his infinitude, his omniscience, omnipresence, wisdom, transcendence, justice, mercy, jealousy, righteousness. The list could go on and on, uh, but at some point we'll come back and revisit some of these things. This morning we're talking about God's love. God's love. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Gerald Bray. He's written a, a systematic theology titled God is Love. And I just want to start with some wisdom from Mr. Bray. He says, God is love. Everything we know about him teaches us that. Every encounter we have with him expresses it. God's love for us is deep and all-embracing, but it is not the warm-hearted sentimentality that often goes by the name of love today. The love God has for us is like the love of a shepherd for his sheep, as the Bible often reminds us. And I just want you to start with the acknowledgement as we think about God's love, that we use the word love in a lot of different contexts and we don't always mean the same thing. So when I say God is love, it's no guarantee that what pops into your mind or my mind is what the Bible wants us to actually think about. We talk to our family members and we say to them, I love you. We say that to our spouse We say that to our children, we say that to our parents, our grandparents, our grandchildren, 
And we mean something similar in each of those relationships, but we also mean something a little bit different in each of those relationships. Outside of our relationships with people, we use the word love in a number of different ways. Brooke and I went a few days back and we ate at a new Mexican food restaurant downtown and uh, somebody said, hey, did you like the new place? And I said, I loved it. I did. I don't mean the same thing that I mean when I say I love my wife or my kids, but I loved it. Yesterday, I watched a basketball game. I loved it. I was a little anxious at the end, but the Jayhawks pulled it off, beat the number one team in the country. I can't believe Baylor's the number one team in the country, but they're not anymore the number one team in the country. And they won, and I said, I loved it. That was fun. I enjoyed watching that. Maybe you're at the point in your life uh, as we come into spring, spring is coming, hang in there, where you say, I'm planning summer vacation. And you say, I love going to the mountains, or I love going to the beach, or I love going to visit family, and you're starting to think about some of those kinds of trips. Maybe you say, hey, have you seen this new movie? Have you seen this new TV show? I, we love it. I love that show. I love that movie. We use the word love in a lot of different contexts. We mean a lot of different things. The question is, when we say God is love, does what pops into our mind line up with what the Bible actually has to say about God being love and God showing love to his people? So that's the task this morning, to make our thoughts line up with what the Bible says when we talk about God's love. So we'll start with some definition, love defined. God's love is part of his expressive goodness. If you've been here the last few weeks, we've been talking about God's goodness, we've talked about his expressive goodness, and we've talked about his inherent goodness. We've looked at Psalm 119, verse 68. It says, you are good and you do good, teach me your statutes. And that first phrase is where we've zeroed in. The psalmist says, you are good. Inherently, that's part of your character. You are a good God. And, this is a different idea, he says you do good. You show goodness towards other people. You are expressive in that goodness. Inherent goodness and expressive goodness. And we've talked about this list over the last few weeks. God's inherent goodness. It includes holiness and glory and beauty and perfection and righteousness. His expressive goodness includes love and mercy and grace and patience and faithfulness. This idea that God is expressively good, that his love is a manifestation of his expressive goodness, it's one of the first things that we teach our children about God. We want our children to know God is loving. He loves you. Let me tell you a story. In the 1800s, there were a couple of sisters. They fell on hard times, and they began to make a living by writing. And Susan Warner was one of the sisters. Susan wrote a novel. She wrote this novel to try to support the family. They had, again, uh, found themselves in a position of need, and she thought, I'm a pretty good writer. Maybe I can write a novel and sell it. So she wrote this novel. And in the novel, one of the characters was trying to give comfort to a dying child. And in the novel, that character, trying to comfort a dying child, wrote a poem for the child. And she put it in the novel, and she published the novel, and the family was able to live. Her sister, Anna Warner, read the novel, read the drama, 
read what this character did for this child, read the poem, and said, that's a great poem. She said, that's such a great poem, we should turn it into a hymn. So she took the poem out of her sister's novel, set it to music, tried to teach it to people in her church. A man named William Bradbury heard the poem turned him. He wasn't crazy about the musical arrangement, but he said, that's pretty good lyrically, I like that. He set it to new music, and the thing just took off. At one point, it was so popular that it was published under the title, this was the name of the hymn, China, because missionaries took the song, and they taught it to people in China, and they just loved it, and they sang it everywhere. And so when they published it in the United States, they published it with the title, China. Here's the lyrics. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Started off as a poem, a fictional character created to give comfort to a dying child. This is one of the first things we want to teach our children, rightly so. There is a God, and he is loving. That's important. That's something that we try to teach the kids down at the other end of the building. It's something you should try to teach your kids and your grandkids. But I need you to understand this. There is something more basic, more fundamental than the truth that God is expressively good to us and that he shows love to us. And this is the idea that you need to get. God's love is also part of his inherent goodness. It's not just something that he shows to us or expresses to us. It's actually inherent to his character. It's part of who he is. Look at these verses from 1 John. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, listen to it, God is love. Not God is loving as he shows love to people, just inherently, that's who he is. God is love. 1 John four sixteen. we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. That's his expressive love. And then John says, God is love. There's expressive goodness and inherent goodness right there in that verse. He has love for us, but inherently, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. What a beautiful thought that the God who exists, the God who created everything, is inherently love. Not just that he shows love, but that he is love. This is an important idea, but it's also an idea where we can go off track really quick. And so I want to bring in my my good friend, J.I. Packer. I wish J.I. Packer was my good friend. This is what he says. St. John's twice-repeated statement, God is love, we just read the verses, is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible and also one of the most misunderstood. Is it a tremendous idea that the God who created everything is a loving God? It's amazing. It's tremendous. It's spectacular. It's mind-blowing. 
but it's also something that is very often completely misunderstood. And the way that it gets misunderstood is that people quote those verses we just read in 1 John as if that summarizes everything that could be possibly said about God. It sort of becomes a a conversation stopper. Well, the Bible says God is love, and that's all that you need to know about him. Guess what? In that same book, 1 John, John says God is light. He's talking about his purity and his holiness. He says God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He's holy and he's pure. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that God is spirit. We've looked at the book of Isaiah chapter 6, the book of Revelation chapter 4 a few weeks ago. It says that God is holy, holy, holy. You cannot summarize all that God is with the word love. You also can't summarize all that God is without the word love. And so we've got to listen to what John says. He is telling us something very, very tremendous, something important. God is love. It's inherent to his character. He shows it expressively to his people. No, it's not all that he is, but it is certainly part of his character and his nature. And so we're trying to think about that this morning. Look, I ask you to think about one more difficult thing. It's all downhill from here, okay? When I say God is inherently loving and expressively loving, what I'm saying to you is that if God had never created us, he would still be loving. It's not like God created Adam and Eve, put humanity on this earth, and then all of a sudden, he started loving someone. This is inherent to who he is. It's eternally true of his character because God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a trinity. Three persons in one Godhead. Three persons, one in essence. From eternity past, the Father loving the Son and the Spirit, the Son loving the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loving the Father and the Son. This is not something that sort of came into existence when you and I showed up. This is something that's been true of God for all of eternity past. He is expressively good, but he's also inherently good. And I realize at this point that we have still not defined what his love is. So let me take a run at it. Are you ready? If God's goodness, we said this a few weeks ago, is that which disposes God to be kind and benevolent to mankind, then God's love describes God's giving of himself so that he might have a relationship with others. I think that's what the Bible describes when it talks about God's love. He gives of himself. It costs him something so that he can then have a relationship with other people. And you can see we've advanced the the ball, so to speak, in thinking about God's goodness and his love. His goodness means he's kind and he's benevolent to mankind. He's good to all of his creatures. But his love starts to get more specific. Now God is disposed to give of himself so that he can have a relationship with others. And when you start to talk about having a relationship with God, you've got to start talking about Jesus. And so that's what we want to do this morning. John chapter 3. You and I, we experience God's love in salvation through Jesus. We experience God's love in salvation through Jesus. John 3.16. I know that many of you know it. 
I'd love for you to read it in your Bible or to read it on the screen with me. The scripture says this, you follow along, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He loved and he sent and it was costly to him and the result is that we have eternal life. Several things I want to point out to you as you're looking in your Bible. I just want you to see that John chapter 3 ends not with a conversation about or a statement about love, but actually with a statement about wrath. You just look in your Bible, John 3 verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Both of those ideas right there in the exact same chapter. Today, you might hear people talk about God's love and his wrath as if they cannot coexist, as if it's an either-or proposition. You can have this one or you can have that one, but you can't have both of them. I would submit to you that if you don't have both, you don't have either. They go together in the Bible. John includes them right here in the same chapter. It's not bad writing. It's not bad authorship. What he's saying to us is if you really want to understand God's love, you're going to have to understand something about his wrath. And if you really want to understand something about his wrath, you're going to have to understand something about his love. You cannot have one without the other. It's why in this series we've coupled these two together at the end. Last week talking about God's wrath. This week talking about God's love. That's not to give you a contrast and to say Sometimes God wakes up and he's cranky. Sometimes he wakes up and he's really nice. That's not what we're saying. Both of these things are part of his character. Both of these things are part of his nature. And this is part of the great tragedy in many churches today. There are many churches that would just come on out and say, we're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about God's wrath. We're not going to talk about God being angry. It's not that they deny those things as a church. It's just they say, I don't really see the benefit in saying all that stuff out loud. Instead, we want to be positive. We want to be upbeat. We want to be encouraging. And we're going to talk about God's goodness and his love. And we're not going to say too much about all the other stuff because that might make some people uncomfortable. If that's your approach, you lose God's love. And what you end up with is fondness. He's fond of you. That's entirely different than saying God has love for sinful people. Entirely different. You end up with just a sentimental, warm, fuzzy idea of God's love that is nothing like the biblical picture of God's love. If you ignore God's wrath, you'll never be able to understand his love. And if you ignore his love, you'll never be able to understand his wrath. The two things go together, which brings us back to the text. Look at John 3, and instead of just verse 16, let's read 16, 17, and 18. The scripture says this, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already condemned. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
When you think about what John is trying to say in John 3.16, you've got to look at everything in John 3. It's why we read the first half earlier. Jesus saying you've got to be born again. Some miracle has to take place in your life. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. It's why we've read these verses. We've noticed that this conversation ends with a reference to God's wrath. And I think it's helpful in 16, 17, and 18 to actually work backwards. Look at 18, then 17, then 16, and follow the logic of what John is saying. Verse 18, he says, you are condemned already. Because you're a sinner, because you've fallen short of God's glory, Jesus doesn't need to come condemn you. You are already under condemnation, verse 18. Verse 17 then says, Jesus came to save you. He came to pull you out of that. He came to give you new birth. You're dead in sins, and he came to make you alive. Verse 16, he came because God loved the world. That's what John says. All of it is motivated by God's love. His giving of himself, giving of himself through sending the Son so that he could have a relationship with people. Let's talk about that love that motivates the Father to send the Son, not to condemn us, but to save us. Let's talk about that love. I boiled this list down to three. I had a lot. I'm just going to talk about three. This is not all that could be said, but these are three true things. This love, God's love, is unmerited. It's unmerited, undeserved, it's free, it's not conditioned, it's gracious, it's a gift, it is unmerited. This is an Old Testament truth and a New Testament truth. Look at the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is talking to the second generation from the Exodus who are about to go into the promised land. And he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were actually the fewest of all peoples. Here's the reason that God, the Lord, Yahweh, set his love on you and chose you. It's because the Lord loves you. He's keeping a note that he made to your fathers. God doesn't love you because you are lovable. He loves you because, this is Moses' answer, because he loves you. And his love is what makes you a lovable person. It's not that you are lovable in and of yourself. Moses says that. It's not that God saw something in you that he needed or wanted. Here's why he set his love on you. It's because he loves you. That's the reason. It's unmerited. Look what we read in the New Testament, 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. He doesn't love us because we had some affection for him or fondness for him or desire for him. He just loves us first because we, not because we're lovable, but simply because he loves us. When I think about this idea that God's love is unmerited, it made me think this week of the scouts. used to be the Boy Scouts. Now we're just the scouts. And the scouts were in the news this week. It was a rough week for the scouts. They filed for bankruptcy, and uh, it wasn't a good news week for them. But in the scouts, if you are in the scouts, you know that you get merit badges. You work for merit badges. You earn merit badges. I didn't participate in scouts as a child, but my understanding is that when you show up to your first scout meeting, they do not give you the sash with all the badges on it, right? It's not like, thank you for joining the scouts. 
here's all the merit badges, we're glad to have you. It's, welcome to the scouts, now get going, right? Pull your weight, earn a badge, do something to deserve it or to merit it. That's why they're called merit badges. You understand that with God on a spiritual level, there is no merit badge sash. And if there were, yours would be empty, as would mine. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. This is not just sort of a fondness or an affection for because there's something desirable in us. God's love for us is unmerited. Secondly, it's sacrificial. It's another way of saying it's costly. God's love is sacrificial. Romans 5.8, Paul says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died as a sacrifice. He died to pay the penalty and the price for our sins. John says it this way. We've quoted 1 John 4 so many times. He says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'd bet lunch that most of you did not use the word propitiation this week in conversation. Maybe I owe you lunch, but I bet most of you didn't. Propitiation is an important Bible word, and what it means is to satisfy the wrath of. When Jesus dies as a propitiation, he dies to satisfy the wrath of God that should rightly fall on me and you. How does that happen? Well, he dies as a sacrifice. He dies as a substitute. He dies taking our place. The curse that should have fallen on us falls on him. Paul says to the Corinthians that he actually became sin, our sin placed on his shoulders. And the payment and the penalty and the punishment meted out on the son so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know life. This is costly love. It's unmerited, it's sacrificial. Third, it's sovereign. It's sovereign. When God sets his saving love on a sinner, that sinner is changed. They're changed. God's love for sinners is not like Valentine's Day. You remember Valentine's Day when you were a kid and you exchanged these chalk hearts? A little bit of sugar, mostly chalk. You get them in a box and... You know, when you're in the third or fourth grade, there's that special someone across class and five minutes earlier you were thumping them on the playground and throwing rocks at them, but then it comes time to Valentine's and you think, okay, now's my chance. And you dump your box out and you look at them and it says, true love, be mine, you and me, say yes. And you find that perfect heart and take it over to them and you give it to them and your, your heart's beating fast and there's the chalk heart. And if you've done that or you remember that or you can picture it, you know there's no guarantees about what's gonna happen next, right? I mean, all bets are off. It could be anything. That chalk heart could be eaten or it could be used by the teacher to do math problems on the chalkboard or it could be thrown into the trash or, you know, 
anything could happen. It's just sort of up in the air. And what I'm saying to you is God's love is not like that. It's powerful love. It's a sovereign love. Look how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. Verse 1, 2, and 3, he says, You're dead in your sins. You follow the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And you're just like the rest of the world. You're just following lockstep with the rest of the world. Spiritually dead, following Satan, just like the rest of the world. And then he says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. He didn't love us because we were lovable. We're dead in sins, following the prince of the power of the air, just like everyone else in the world. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He doesn't put the candy heart on your desk and then wait and twiddle his thumbs and say, what's going to happen now? He just reaches down in his love and you're dead and he makes you alive. You're lost and then you're found. It's a sovereign love. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul describes it this way in Romans 5.5. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It just gets poured into your life. You're dead and then you're alive. You've been born once and then all of a sudden you've been born twice. Jesus said, the wind It's the same Greek word as spirit. The wind, the spirit blows where it wishes. You don't control it. You don't harness it. You don't manipulate it. If anyone knows that, we know that in West Texas. It just blows where it wishes. And you see its effect. And when God sets his love on a sinner to save that sinner, he saves them. They're dead and he makes them alive. And he does it through the work of the Holy Spirit. That kind of love changes your eternity and it changes you. And so I'll end quickly with this. How should we live? What should change in us? How should we respond in light of God's love? Number one, we should repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. That's straight from Jesus himself. Straight from the one that the Father sent to save us. John 3.16, God loved the world to such a degree that he sent his only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself says it this way, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the Gospel. This is the call on your life and my life this morning. Repent of your sin, agree with God about your sin. God, you are holy and I am not. And I deserve your anger and your wrath. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross, bearing the curse for me, bearing my sin and paying the penalty for my transgression. I'm turning from my sin and I am believing the truth about Jesus. You say, okay, when do I earn the merit badges? What, can, what else do I need to do? Where's the catch? What's the fine print? None. You come to Jesus with an empty merit badge sash and you march into heaven with one badge, Jesus. That's it. That's the only merit you claim. Not anything good that you have done or will do or tried to do, but what Jesus has done for you. So repent and believe the gospel. Second, worship. This would be one of the things that moves us to worship God, to praise God, to extol 
God. We're not going to read the entirety of Psalm 136, but you should read it this afternoon. You should look at it this week. The psalmist says this, Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. 26 verses all the way through. Every line has the refrain, his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And it's worship and it's praise because God is loving and he has shown love to unworthy sinners through Jesus Christ. So we repent, we believe, we worship. Lastly, we love. When God's love saves you, he begins to change you and he makes you more like himself, makes you more like his son. And if he's loving, then we start to become loving. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is not something we do to earn God's love, but it's something that happens in us and through us as a result of God's love. God pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When we're dead, he makes us alive. And he doesn't do it simply to give us a a stamp on our spiritual passport so we get to go to heaven someday. But he actually begins to work in us so that we become more like him. He's a loving God. God. And when his love is poured into our lives, we become loving people.